autism and we will be talking and exploring a BBC news item which talked about um, dozens of young autistic people having died after serious failings in their care despite warnings from coroners. So that's the first topic that we shall start at 7.30 a.m. And the second topic that we shall discuss today starting at 15 a.m. is Adult Learners Week. Um, so we shall be celebrating that and we'll be talking about learning and development and the importance of learning and development in uh, organizations these days as well as in life in general. Right, on that note, um, Assalamu alaikum, peace be with you. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, as uh, as always, my weekly partner in crime, um, Imam Usman Manan. Alaikum Salaam. Good morning. How are you today? Very, very good. Uh, absolutely <coughs> great. Um, how has your week been? Uh, week was busy. Busy. There's um, uh, a lot of work to do in the office. Um, we have our new semester starting for the International Talim Al-Quran Academy. Right. And there's a lot of admissions and registrations, phone calls. And yeah, that's going on. <laughs> oh, excellent. Right. Yeah, I'm sure you guys are always busy. Okay. Um, let's start off with the um, headlines appearing in the newspapers this morning. So um, uh, most of the newspapers this morning talk, talk about um, comedian Russell Brand and this continues to dominate most of the front pages um, this morning. The Times, one of the papers that led the investigation into his alleged conduct, report, conduct reports that since Saturday, more women have come forward with allegations. It says these claims have not yet been investigated, but will now be rigorously checked. The Metro reports that the controversy raises questions about what television executives knew about Brand's alleged behavior, saying some may have turned a blind eye. The star is accused of rape and sexual assaults, allegations he has strenuously denied, saying his relationships were always consensual. The Eye also reports on questions about what television executives might have known, saying the industry faces allegations of a culture of protecting the star over vulnerable staff. The Daily, the Daily Telegraph reports that the BBC has launched an urgent inquiry into alleged complaints made against Brand, who worked as a radio presenter for the corporation between 2006 and 2008. The Daily Express reports that complaints made so far could actually be tip of the iceberg. The Guardian also reports on the brand story, but it leads on the news that Unite, Labour's biggest union supporter, will launch campaigns in the Red Wall areas to try and urge the party leaders to launch more radical policies in areas such as energy, steel and green jobs. The Daily Mail reports that serial baby killer Lucy Letby may have killed three more babies and tried to murder another 15, quoting a pediatrician who gave evidence at her trial. 
The Financial Times reports that Labour leader Sir Keir Starmer plans to seek a major rewrite of Britain's Brexit deal if his party wins the next general election. In an interview with, with the paper, Sakia says the current deal the UK has with the bloc is too thin. The paper's main image shows an anti-fossil fuel protest in New York as world leaders gather in the city for this week's United Nations General Assembly. And the Daily Star warns its readers to prepare for an 11-day stretch of rains and floods adding that Hurricane Lee could hit the UK with gusts of up to 60 miles per hour. Take it breezy out there, it says, while a confused seagull looks on uh, in its headline on the front page. So those were the headlines carried by the newspapers this morning. We shall now take a very quick break, and when we come back, we will continue to talk about what the morning papers are talking about. Do stay tuned. Life of Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Treatment of Neighbours Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, always treated his neighbours with extreme kindness and consideration. He used to say that the angel Gabriel had emphasised consideration towards one neighbours so often that he sometimes began to think that a neighbour would perhaps be included among the prescribed heirs. Abu Dhar, peace be upon him, relates that the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said to him, Abu Dhar, while broth is being cooked for your family, add a little more water to it so that your neighbour might also share in it. This does not mean that the neighbour should not be invited to share in other things, but as the Arabs were mostly a migratory people and their favourite dish was broth, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, referred to this dish as a typical one and taught that one should not think so much of the taste of the food as of the obligation to share it with one's neighbour. Abu Huraira peace be upon him, relates. On one occasion the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, exclaimed, I call God to witness that he is not a believer. I call God to witness that he is not a believer. I call God to witness that he is not a believer. The companions inquired, Who is not a believer, O Messenger of Allah? And he replied, He whose neighbour is not secure against injury and ill-treatment at his hands. On one occasion, when he was addressing women, he said, If anybody finds only the foot of a goat to cook, that person should share it with his or her neighbour. He asked people not to object to their neighbours driving pegs into their walls or putting them to any other use which occasioned no injury. Abu Huraira, peace be upon him, relates, The Prophet said, He who believes in God and in the Day of Judgment should occasion no inconvenience to his neighbour. He who believes in God and in the Day of Judgment should occasion no inconvenience to his guest. And he who believes in God and in the Day of Judgment should utter only words of virtue or should keep quiet. Muslim. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Welcome back to this live edition of The Breakfast Show from the South London Studios of Voice of Islam. And peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Right, uh, we're still talking about the um, important events um, around the world, head- headlines bearing the newspapers. And um, one of the things that uh, actually uh, Swan Vinan happened in the world of sport, um, in the world of cricket uh, specifically, is the Asia Cup, uh, whose final was held um, yesterday between India mm. and Sri Lanka. 
And uh, what a final uh, it was. I think not much of a final. Really. <laughs> yeah, it, was, it was like a group stage match. <laughs> it was, uh, yeah, it was, um, it turned out to be actually absolutely uh, rather one-sided. And um, India beat Sri Lanka uh, by 10 wickets uh, in, I think, 6.1 overs or something like that. It was a 50-over match. Uh, Sri Lanka was able to score, believe it or not, only 50 runs. <laughs> from from their innings that's not one player that's the whole team and uh yeah um india was uh, was able to score those in, in about six overs and without the loss of single wicket yeah that's crazy i mean if if you put that in perspective that's about one if they played the whole 50 overs so that's one run in in, in each over <laughs> that's like that happens by accident usually <laughs> that's right yeah no no it's uh, yeah it's unbelievable and it wasn't as if you know it was an unplayable wicket or it was uh, you know it was good bowling of course it was good bowling you've got to give credit where it's due but it wasn't unplayable conditions and it was home conditions for Sri Lanka so you would have expected them to uh, to actually have done better than that but I think what's uh, what now what's even more important is that uh, only in about uh, two and a half weeks time the World Cup is starting in India so mm. I think um, two or three things number one uh, this bodes very well for India uh, they're hosting the cup so obviously they uh, you know they, the conditions uh, they will make sure that the conditions suit them and yeah, they're always very offensive in the, in the batting they are uh, and their they rely on is, their betting is well. is very good and the other thing now is uh, of late in the last few years is that um uh, i i'd never say i thought i'd never be never say this um but um their the bowling has also become almost sensational uh in the last yeah. few years especially fast bowling so india is is uh, uh, has, is not generally known for you know uh, producing excellent fast bowlers. I think couple there was probably the last great that they uh, that they produced. Um, but now that the attack uh, the attack that they have is is very very good, and um, so they have a potent uh, base attack. Then they have a very very good spin attack, and as you said, the batsmen are just uh, world class, uh, absolutely. And they they. They have this knack of producing, just like Pakistan has a knack of producing bowler, Bowlers, fast bowler yeah. after bowler. Uh, these guys have a knack of producing great batsmen after batsmen. Yeah, it's very interesting as well. You know, all all countries have a, uh, not just in sports and everything, but specifically, yeah. if you, since we're talking about cricket, there is, mm. like India has, I think, always had good batsmen. One of the world's best batsmen, like Tendulkar, they have been from India. Whereas Pakistan uh, have had like were the world's best bowlers correct uh, even multiple bowlers at one time right. dominating uh, I think this, it was Vakar, Yunus and Vaseem Akram Vaseem Akram and yeah, Shreya Bakhtar so, all three at the same yeah. time <laughs> so there's there's a lot in there yeah. uh, So and I think like for example West Indies has always had like amazing like power hitters correct uh, so every country has like a uh, a kind of style of playing Correct, and they have dominated brand. in that in that style 100% yeah yeah, absolutely uh, like Australia I think Australia or New Zealand have amazing fielders uh, sometimes well, see their whole for, team absolutely but they also know like, you know Australians again are known for you know great fast bowling attacking fast bowling and attacking mm. uh, batting as well that's again their style and that's their brand uh, something which I think England has also assumed over the last um, uh, two three years is this baseball um 
um, methodology <laughs> that they have adopted uh, or style that they have adopted, uh, as they call it, baseball, that um, has changed the way that they have approached the game, and uh, and they are the uh, I think a, a strong contender for the for the World Cup as well, which is only starting in um, in two and a half weeks' time. Mm. Right. So currently, the let me just tell you about the rankings. Uh, yeah. So there's three main formats in cricket mm-hmm. uh, for now, which is the T20, which is a 20-over match, uh, the ODI, the one-day innings, which is a 50-over match, and then mm-hmm. there's a test match, which I think is ridiculous. <laughs> it's a five-day game uh, in most cases. So uh, in T20, the top-ranking team right now is India, uh, following India is England, and then third is Pakistan. Uh, and the ODI team ranking, number one is Pakistan, uh, number two is India and number three is Australia and in test cricket is uh, at the top is India as well and number two is Australia and then England um, so uh, according to the rankings uh, this this uh, well, um, Asia Cup which just happened should be in the hands of Pakistan but uh, I think they, they actually lost to Sri Lanka right? And India and India as well. But. Yeah, they lost to both of them. And uh, yeah, so I mean, the, these rankings are, uh, you know, accumulated over a period of time. It's really the team which peaks at a certain time and also does well on the day. And uh, at the moment, it seems that mm. India is peaking. Yes, definitely. Okay. Um, any other news that may have caught your eye this morning, Imam Manan? Yes, we, you were mentioning earlier as well about the rainfall which is coming up. Right. Uh, so regarding that... <clears throat> The Met Office has uh, warned even about uh, thunderstorms and even possible threat to life, uh, especially in the southern UK part. So more than a month's rain could fall in less than 24 hours in southern parts of the UK by the end of Sunday. And Met Office warning is in place for severe thunderstorms that could cause life-threatening floods. Travel has already been uh, disrupted by the downpours, which caused airport to cancel uh, its remaining flights on a Sunday and uh, about 12 centimeters uh, of rain could fall in Taunton and Bridgewater in Somerset according to the Met Office which is more than the average rainfall for the whole September. Um, There's a lot of videos posted on social media showing uh, how the main terminal at the uh, the airport is flooded. I think a little bit similar to what happened a few weeks ago in, in Frankfurt uh, where you could uh, also see in videos that the whole airport was flooded, um, and I could like from the videos you could tell the water was up above the knees of yeah, a few people. Absolutely. So it was uh, a lot of rainfall, and recently I think like a lot of rain and climate change related uh, catastrophes are happening. Correct. Uh, which is I think kind of also uh, worrying. Absolutely. We should, we're very worrying mm-hmm. that we should be. I, th- I think it might be too late to save, uh, you know, the, to to make a change now. But it's never too oh, late. Yeah, hopefully not. Uh, yeah, but it is. You're absolutely right. It's it's very mm. very worrying. A lot of earthquakes, yeah. uh, especially in this recent mm-hmm. month. So, so uh, we're seeing a trend of increasing rainfall, earthquakes, um, floods, floods. So all these um, <clears throat> climate change related things. Um, the Met Office said there was a small chance of thunderstorms becoming severe in the southeast of England with large hailstones frequently, um, uh, frequent lightning, uh, gusty winds and torrential rain producing 30 to 40 millimetres in an hour from late afternoon through Sunday night. 
Um, it was quite rainy last night as well. It was, was pretty, some pretty thundery as well. Thunderstorms. And uh, <clears throat> in areas with an amber warning, damage to homes and businesses is likely and could happen quickly with fast flowing or deep flood water uh, posing a danger to life. Spray and flooding is likely to lead to road closures and difficult driving conditions and there is a chance of transport delays and power cu power cuts. In areas um, with a yellow warning, um, there is a small chance conditions could pose a danger to life, flooding to homes and businesses. And the Met Office um, meteorologist Jonathan Vautry said it was worth checking the forecast before leaving home to know where the most severe th th thunderstorms uh, are coming and it is worth checking those time uh, those things immediately before you head out on your journey so that you are aware where the most severe thunderstorms are possible so uh for everyone who's listening just make sure to double check the weather i mean it is quite sunny right now and right. Uh, it's, it's 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 a nice weather but you never know mm -hmm. better to check and prepare especially if you're if you are planning on going on a longer journey maybe absolutely better be safe than sorry Right, uh, another th uh, news um, uh, report that's actually caught my eye this morning is um, actually carried by The Guardian. It's about the government launching a campaign to tackle loneliness at universities. So millions of teenagers across Britain will, uh, will arrive at universities for the first time on Monday as Freshers' Week begins. Almost all will experience bouts of loneliness, with nearly half being worried they will be judged if they admit to it, according to a sample of 1,000 students collected by YouGov. To try to tackle the issue, the Minister for Loneliness, Stuart Andrew, has launched an awareness campaign, partnering with charities supporting wellness, student radio associations, student roofs, um, and student minds, he wants students to open up and talk to each other. Going to university can be the biggest transition young people have faced, he said. We want them to enjoy their experience at university and excel in their education, so we are highlighting that it will help them to speak to other undergraduates about their feelings. The government has said that tackling loneliness across the UK is a priority. Since 2018, it and its partners have invested over £80 million on the issue, including over £34 million in reducing loneliness caused by the pandemic. And £3.6 million has been invested in Student Space, a mental health and well-being online platform offering online mental health support, support to all students in England and Wales until 2026. The campaign has been welcomed by Robin Hewings, the Programme Director for the Campaign to End loneliness. There is a real value in this campaign, he said. Chronically, lonely students are more likely to say that their courses are bad value for money and their expectations have not been met. They are about twice as likely to be considering withdrawing. Demographically, chronically lonely students are more likely to be LGBTQ+, from DE social groups and females. Concrete actions, he said, is largely best done by universities. But Andrew's campaign has been criticised by other experts and students for being tokenistic, pointing to funding for the campaign which comes from the 2023 to 2024 budget um, of £445,000 in total. Paul Crawford, Professor of Health Humanities at the School of Health Sciences at Nottingham University and a director at the Institute of Mental Health, said... Loneliness has become a popular notion for politicians to talk about, but it's rarely followed by a promise for real money, he said. This campaign seems to be about creating something without any infrastructure because all that has been destroyed by government cuts. 
This campaign conveniently ignores the fact that the opportunity for these young adults to meet and learn how to build relationships in their childhood vanishes when their libraries, youth centers, swimming pools were shut and their public spaces became less well-maintained and less welcoming under the government policy of austerity. If I was a young person, I would feel this campaign wasn't actually about me. I would think it's about managing trends in political debates and concerns, he added. Right, so that uh, with that, we will round up this segment of news, um, various news items appearing in the newspapers this morning. Taking a quick break now, a very quick one, I promise. And when we come back, we shall delve, delve right into the first topic, which is about autism. Do stay tuned. Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Assalamu uh, Welcome back to the breakfast show. Um, we were just speaking about the news and we are starting our first segment. We will be talking about young autistic people who are still dying despite warnings over care. Uh, so, the gist of the story is that dozens of young autistic people have died after serious failings. Uh, in their care despite repeated warnings from uh, coroners BBC News has found our <coughs> our investigation found issues that we flagged a decade ago are still being warned about now and the government says 4.2 million pounds is being invested to improve services so according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention Autism uh, or it's more accurate and comprehensive term autism uh, spectrum disorder ASD or uh, is a develop developmental and complex condition that affects individuals in different ways differences in the brain make it a spectrum disorder which means that it comes up differently and to varying degrees in each person this typically becomes noticeable by the age of two or three this condition often presents difficulties of social communication and interactions along with tendencies towards restricted or repetitive behaviors so it can be difficult to understand certain things and it can be challenge challenging to express themselves and in very extreme cases as uh, some children they do not even speak and uh, um, it's very difficult for them uh, to communicate and it takes a long time for them even to pick up some words uh, if you look at this in more depth in people's social communication and interaction, uh, avoiding or not maintaining eye contact is quite common. Uh, 
In fact, some may not respond to their name by the age of nine months. Uh, the same goes for expressing their emotions through facial expressions like happiness, sadness, anger or surprise. Uh, also, by 12 months, those with ASD may not engage in interactive games like uh, pat a cake and they may have limited or no use of gestures such as waving goodbye. Other aspects include slow development in sharing interests, recognizing when others are distressed or just engaging with children in playtime. But ASD is more than just challenges in uh, social communication and interactions. Individuals with a ASD often exhibit restricted or repetitive behaviors and interests. For example, precise arrangement of objects leading to distress upon disruption and repetition of words or phrases, consistent repetitive play patterns and more things. Uh, delayed language, for example, movement and cognitive skills uh, hyperactivity, impulsivity or uh, inattentive, inattentiveness and occurrences of epilepsy or seizure. With all these in mind, some people with ASD may show unique approaches to learning uh, motor skills or attention difficulties. They might excel in certain areas like art, music, math or memory related work while not as much in others. For example, they might perform exceptionally well in um, analytical or problem-solving assessments. This just shows how diverse the symptoms can be. Right. Thank you very much uh, for that introduction, Imam Anan. Let's now um, go to our first guest for this segment, Ms. Joe Whiting, who is from Autism West Mid Midlands and is a specialist autism advisor. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you. A very warm welcome to The Breakfast Show. Hello. Good morning. Uh, tell us maybe let, let's start with um, with defining um, the the spectrum uh, as as it's called so it this is um, it, it's a pretty complex condition tell us a little more we've tried to explain it a bit in in our words um, but as an expert tell us a little bit more about what autism spectrum disorder actually means yeah so being autistic means that your brain works differently from a non-autistic or neurotypical person um, and it influences the way a person experiences their senses, how they communicate and how they interact with other people and how they think and process information. But we call it a spectrum and it doesn't mean it's not a linear spectrum that goes from not autistic to very autistic. That's not how it works. We're not all on the spectrum. It's a spectrum in, in the way that every autistic person has different challenges and different strengths. Hmm. Uh, you're either autistic or you're not, and every autistic person is different. One person might struggle more with communication, and by struggle I mean with whatever our social and cultural norms are that are unspoken, they might not know what they are. Um, you know, and that depends on what society and culture you've grown up in. Um, so one person might struggle more with communication, another might struggle more with um, their senses and, and processing senses, another might struggle more with um, processing information. And that's what we mean by a spectrum, that it's kind of, it's varied for every person. And so we at Autism West Midlands prefer not to use terms such as mild or severe severe autism or high or low functioning 
because you'll find that the ability of someone to cope with life varies hour on hour, day on day, just mm. like it does for the rest of the population. Of course. Yeah, absolutely. No, um, thank you. And I think it's really important, sorry, to, to clarify that autism is not related to IQ or intellectual ability. Someone might mm -hmm. be autistic with an associated <coughs> learning disability or they might not. And I think we can quite often tend to think of autistic people either as being the super hyper-intelligent focused in one area or with a learning disability and not able to function. And actually there's way more variation than that and those are really unhelpful stereotypes. Yeah, exactly. And I, I wanted to uh, to address that a little bit because, uh, you know, you see that a lot in uh, in Netflix shows and, uh, and, and, and the media in general. Uh, do you often find that uh, a, a deficiency is then overcompensated in in another faculty uh, in somebody who has um, uh, who has autism? Um, I would <laughs> I would have an issue with the word deficiency. Actually, I know the medical definition talks about deficiencies, but we talk about differences. Mm -hmm. And I think we're really quick to talk about deficiencies when actually it's a different way of communicating. It's a different way of processing. And I would struggle to comment on um, how things are portrayed in the media because normally I can't bear to watch them. <laughs> okay. Because actually what it's one of those things you want an autistic person to be portrayed by an autistic actor. And mm. there is... Um, there is a, a kids TV show at the moment and I can't remember its name that is about a school situation and the characters are autistic and they're played by autistic actors um, mm. and that is where you get the real understanding of what being autistic means from an autistic perspective we can't know that from a textbook sure. you, you know that from lived experience or from talking to someone who is autistic about their own experience Mm. Uh, thank you, uh, Mr. Whiting. Uh, I have a question that can autism go undiagnosed? Um, is it possible that you you maybe catch it way uh, way later, in, maybe when you're in your teenagers, or is that something easy to pick up in early early ages? Um, it absolutely can go undiagnosed for a long, long time. Um, I think the diagnostic criteria is all um, based on how it looks in a certain type of presentation of autism. So it's based on your traditional male model and for a long time they thought it was males only. Um, but it's a lot, we're understanding more and more now about the element of masking and I don't know if you're aware of that or if people have talked about it um, but masking is where an autistic person feels like they need to pretend to be something else in order to fit into society. And we all do this to a certain extent, don't we? We kind of put on a front yeah. uh, in different situations. But if you feel like you need to do that in every area of your life all the time, mm. that is A, exhausting and mm. hugely detrimental to your mental health. Sure. And, and B, nobody really sees the real you and sees the things that you're struggling with. And what we find, particularly in women, 
that they're misdiagnosed with mental health disorders. So depression, anxiety, personality disorders. And they might at a very later date actually been diagnosed autistic and, and suddenly make sense of their life and all the things that they have struggled with that have made them feel like they're a failure. And now they understand it. And we're increasingly seeing that parents of children who are diagnosed go through the process with their children and then kind of think, oh, but hold on, I was like that as a child Mm. and life is still really challenging for me now and I don't know why. (laughs) And we see a lot of parents then getting diagnosed because of understanding their children's experience. Mm. Mm. Very interesting, right. Yeah, it's uh, very interesting. I, I Actually, I have a friend and a few people told me that he, he has tendencies of autism because he's very smart at some things. For example, he's very quick at picking up languages. Mm. He's uh, very good at uh, translating things. Like He can translate very quickly. He doesn't need to think about it. Mm. But there's yeah. some simple tasks, like if you have to like do the laundry or you know just uh, t- take the bins out, he, he will take so long because... He kind of uh, loses attention, or uh, so. I I do that as well, but for different reasons. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I, 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 yeah. when when I do that, yeah. I it, it's mostly a front. Uh, so yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so no, he's uh, I mean yes. he's uh, he's quite old, but the you never it's, somebody when somebody mentioned that to me that he might have autism, it was a shock to me. I mean, hmm. it doesn't seem like autism. So can you tell us a bit about this? How what kind of um, like the different degrees of autism, what's the range? Yeah, I mean, I spoke a bit about it kind of, there's no mild or severe. I think some people have developed coping mechanisms um, throughout their life to either manage how they cope with life or, as previously mentioned, masking and pretending that they're okay to the world. Um, And so I think it's, People can have autistic traits, but you're either autistic or not, whether or not you're diagnosed. Mm-hmm. Um, and some people have quirks, don't they? And they may or may not be autistic. Um, so it's, it, you know, there is there is a spectrum and there is uh, of different challenges um, that people might have or, or abilities, but also there is a spectrum of the amount of support that someone might need in order mm-hmm. to live their life. So you might have an incredibly intelligent individual who can do phenomenal mathematics but but struggles in day-to-day life. Um, Mm. And and that doesn't mean that they are mentally disabled. It Mm. is the way that their brain processes information in a different way to how a neurotypical person might do that. So so does the child or whoever the autistic person is, does he realise that he has autism? Um, It depends how much they know about it. I think it's not something that you grow up inherently knowing about yourself. You might Mm. grow up feeling like you don't fit in or you're different. And I think the benefit of a diagnosis is that you can understand how your brain works. And if you can understand what's going on in your brain, then you can figure out how to make life work for you and how to get other people to support you. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's we talk a lot about labels, you know, or people say, well, do you really want your child diagnosed and to be stuck with that label? But we 
but mm. we w- I would say well what other labels are they going to be stuck with mm. you mm. know um, rude unable to communicate um, you know not very intelligent can't do basic tasks could do better you know and I would rather for my children that they have the label of being autistic understand how their brains work mm. and then are able to access the appropriate support Right. Mm-hmm. And what sort of support is available? Actually, let me let me um, uh, let me actually firstly ask you, what are the various tools for diagnosis? So the diagnostic process varies in every region in the UK, um, which can be pretty challenging. But basically, you, you speak to your GP and it goes through. There's a diagnostic process. It's a multidisciplinary team. There'll be questionnaires filled in by parents by school and by any other setting that sees the child regularly and then there'll be a face-to-face appointment although increasingly that may well be online since the pandemic where they interact with the child um, and and look at some of the areas that they they might struggle in um, you know they make it kind of it's all play-based and from that they have a discussion so it might be with a pediatrician a psychiatrist an occupational therapist they discuss all the information and they come with a, a diagnosis at the end of that right so the first port of call should be your gp yeah gp or or school yeah right okay mm-hmm. and and what if you're beyond school whatever you're in university and or at that level um yeah so again speak to a gp mm-hmm. the university may well have support systems, student counsellors, they might have a disability team, um, student support who will be able to help you as well. Right, okay. And um, going back to the, the early question that I asked, so what are the tools, what are the various support mechanisms or, or support? Are there any medications or is it um, a different kind of support? Um, unfortunately, there is very little support. Mm. So um, in the area I live in, you get a diagnosis and you're discharged from the service and that's it really Uh, okay yeah yeah um there is work being done research on how to make the the diagnosis more informative so you you know you get more information about support needs but um on the whole it is up to the parents of the child being diagnosed or the individual to figure things out um which is such a shame, isn't it? Because mm. you don't mm. know what you don't know. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so what, sorry. So, what sort of support does your organisation, organisation Autism West Midlands, provide? Yeah. So that's what I was going to go on to. So, what we do is actually we have we've got an information helpline where people can phone up and ask any questions and speak to a specialist advisor. Um, we run a course called Rising to the Challenge. Uh, which is over six weeks and it covers the the basics of of autism for parents so understanding what it actually means really getting to grips with the sensory processing and that's a huge thing the way that senses are processed differently we talk about anxiety and a big issue for a lot of parents is we talk about behavior um, and and how we can look at that differently and help that so we kind of give them an overview and so that they are then well equipped to support their child throughout um, the rest of their childhood, <coughs> excuse me, and as they grow up. 
Um, we also run autism confidence courses for autistic adults and teenagers. And this is to help them, again, in the same way, understand what being autistic actually means and to understand their experience of life and give them the confidence to, to be who they are and not ashamed of who they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, so th- there is no treatment uh, in terms of medications. It's just, uh, let me psycho- psychological, or um, you have to speak to them and figure out. Yeah, I mean, it's like saying that there's no no treatment for being a different nationality or mm. from a different place. It's who they are, and actually learning to embrace that, mm. seeing it as a difference and not a deficit, and understanding the things you struggle with and being able to self-advocate, you know, actually, if you can say... I really struggle with eye contact, but I can mm. listen to you without looking at you, is a really important thing for someone to be able to say. If you can say that rather than kind of struggle in that situation or someone think you're rude, then that's really helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not an illness. It doesn't need to be treated. And, you know, mm-hmm. it, it, autistic people are people. There's nothing wrong with them. Mm-hmm. But maybe... We they're just different as you said differently able as you were saying yeah. and it shouldn't always be on them to change how they interact maybe mm. we need to flex and change and understand a bit more anyway mm-hmm. um and then we can work we can work together but what you do find though is that autistic people are more likely to suffer from mental health problems and that's largely mm-hmm. due to living in a world that doesn't really understand them and to mask, having to mask in order to feel like they fit in. And there is sadly um, a, a far higher than average rate of suicide amongst autistic people. So there should, there needs to be more support. They might have medication to help with their mental health, but really what's going to be the best thing to help them is having the appropriate support available and people understanding what the autistic experience is rather than the medical and textbook definition but what the experience of autistic people is and listening to that voice in how we can uh, make our little part of the world more um uh more available to them and more comfortable for them mm-hmm. and uh, just lastly how much do we know about the cause or uh, if there's any prevention does there anything have to do with um maybe genetically or does it have to do with uh, the mother's behavior during a pregnancy how much do we know about that um it there is a large genetic component to uh being autistic um and um again i would say we don't want to prevent it actually you know we've got a huge breadth and depth of different types of people if you were to cut out entirely one group of how the brain works then we'd be really stuck in a lot of situations um so we don't want to prevent it we want to embrace it and know more about it and it not to be a big issue because because it's more understood um it's absolutely nothing to do with mother's behavior during pregnancy with any vaccination with anything else it's largely a genetic component and beyond that there isn't a huge amount of of understanding um of what causes it excellent miss joe whiting thank you so very much uh, it was so interesting and you've all made us wiser this morning thank you so thank very you. much for joining us
Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. Have a great week and peace with you. And to you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So that was Ms. Jo Whiting from Autism West Midlands. Let me now go straight to our second guest for this segment, Matthew Wicks, who is from Beyond Autism. He's the head of outreach and training there. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you. A very warm welcome, Matthew, to The Breakfast Show. Hi. Good morning. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you for joining us. Um, so... Uh, Autism is, as we were talking to earlier, I guess is different for each individual. Mm-hmm. How in your charity, in, in your organization, do you support and guide teachers to best set up their classroom to support autistic children? Yeah, like you're saying, um, individual for everyone. So that's the, that's kind of the first thing we're looking at, get, just getting to know that individual and finding out what their sensory needs are, what their likes and dislikes, um, and then that can help. Um, sort of plan how you're going to set things up in the class. Um, it's really important to have things like visual timetables and kind of consistent routines, which can actually benefit all the kids. Um, and then that can really help, um, yeah, autistic children sort of understand what's going on a bit a, a bit easier. Um, I think it's really important to listen to parents as well. Like they obviously know, know their children best, and that can be really useful for the teachers, like asking parents questions, getting to know them that way. Um, and then some additional things, again, like I said, it depends on the individual, but maybe if they need a kind of a safe, quiet space outside of the classroom or somewhere mm-hmm. within the corner of the classroom, like a quiet corner they can go to if they need that, just a bit of time to regulate and with all the things that can be quite difficult in a class, like the noise and lots of children running around and that kind of thing, just a space they can kind of, um, yeah, retreat to if needed. Sure. But, yeah. Um, is... Um is autism support available in most schools in the UK? Um, all schools will have a SENCO, a Special Educational Needs Coordinator, so right. they'll be responsible for the support of that. Um, and then it can really vary. Um, you know, some schools might have a lot of autistic children and they kind of put more into it that way. But, um, yeah, it's it can be quite varied what support you can get. And then there's organisations like ourselves that can um, provide some support if needed. Mm. And uh, what kind of methods or uh, tools do you use to empower non-speaking members um, of your cohort? So there's a variety of different ways, um, what we call it communication devices. They can be high and low tech, so you might have things like on a on a tablet that can <coughs> the learner can you know type what they want to want to say and then it can speak for them, all the way to mm. more um, sort of low tech versions like what we call PEX books, which is uh, a book that has individual pictures on, and then you, you pass that picture to the person talking to. Um, we also use visuals to support our own language. So as an adult, we might point to a picture when we're saying the word to kind of reinforce what we're saying, make it clearer. Um, and again, it always, it always comes back to that individualization. It's what works for the learner. We, we talk about using a total communication approach. So whatever works for the learner, we'll use. Mm. So, uh, I just want to know what is kind of the most common kind of, if it's if I can say kind of uh, autism, uh, or in in what area do you see it? Because I I know I have a uh, my cousin's son. He has he's very good at mathematics, uh, yeah. but he he's also diagnosed with auth- autism. So, yeah. uh, I hear that a lot. That people are usually good in maths and counting and stuff. Um, so what what's kind of uh, you know the most common um, diagnosed autism if, if 
if you can answer if, this. If, if there is one, that is. If there is one. Yeah. Yeah, they kind of, I think, things like that, the, the sort of, the, those skills in maths and engineering is often, I think, seen more maybe in, especially in sort of like the media and, you know, TV mm, shows. Get more attention, yeah. Understanding, yeah. yeah. But it's, I'm not sure there's any real um, evidence or that there's a specific type that's more or less, mm. um, yeah, and it kind of, again, it's that individualization. It's this, we say like once you've met one person of autism, you've met one person of autism. It's, mm. um, yeah, there's a real range. And then you've also got associated like learning disabilities potentially as well. So there could be someone that's autistic and does have a learning disability or doesn't. So there's quite a variation there as well. Is uh, OCD an autism condition? Um, it's, it can be co-occurring, um, but it's not that it's um, specifically uh, linked to autism. But there, and there are, Often what you can see is quite similar. Um, the behaviours might look similar. Things about like mm. liking routine and order, but actually um, the diagnosis could be quite different. Right. So, um, Matthew, what provisions do you have um, in place for for those leaving school um, to cope with um, in the wider world? Mm-hmm. I think one of the biggest things probably is, I think the previous call was mentioned as well, like that just really raising awareness and um people understanding autism is a, the, the biggest thing we can do but also probably one of the hardest things that we can we can do in society like mm-hmm. autistic people shouldn't really have to change themselves but we can like adjust the world to um, support all disabilities and then more specific things so um, as an organization we have we created an employability toolkit and um, that's available on our website um, and that can support autistic people who are looking for work um, but also employers that are maybe wanting to be more um, open and, you know, employ autistic people, maybe not sure how they can or what they can do to support. And then it's kind of got similar things to what we talked about before with the classroom. It's how can a workplace maybe make adjustments, you know, give someone um, time to have an extra break if they need it because of the sensory overload, things like that. So so that's kind of the more specific things that we do. Um, um, yeah. We were talking to... Um Ms. Jo Whiting earlier uh, from Autism West Midlands, and she mentioned, uh, you know, the stigma that's uh, that's attached to any condition. And autism is uh, is no different. Is it, does it does it the diagno- diagnosis affect, for example, stuff like your insurance cost or your um, your driver's license and and stuff like that? Does it have an impact on those things? I'm not actually too sure about the um, in terms of insurance and things. I think. Hmm. I think we've always, whenever we speak to parents, it's always about if if someone has those additional needs and they need that support, having the diagnosis can help them get that support. Often things can be, it's more about sort of like the support can be kind of, I guess, behind the, the wall of having the diagnosis. So you sort of need the diagnosis to be able to access certain services. So for me, that's often the biggest kind of thing of why we'd want to push for that if, you know, if the need is there the needs there it's not like it's going to make a difference whether um the diagnosis isn't going to make things any any worse and it might actually open those doors to certain levels of support hmm. um, okay that's kind of, i guess that's kind of always the, the way we look at it sure excellent um matthew i have a very important question to ask which is about ehcp the educational health and care plan but we are yeah. coming up to the eight o'clock news so if you don't mind staying on the line um for a couple sure. of minutes and then we'll come back and and uh, talk to you about what educational health and care plan is and what that means. Um, 
So, um, yeah, with that, we will take a very quick break. And um, uh, when we come back after the news break, we will continue talking to Matthew Wicks, who is from Beyond Autism. And he's the head of outreach and training over there. And we'll continue to talk about this very important talk about, uh, topic about what autism um, uh, spectrum is, uh, how can we support them, how, how um, diagnosis um, occurs, as well as um, uh, what sort of support uh, is available to those um, uh, in schools at the moment. Do stay tuned. Thank you very much for staying on the line. Uh, you were listening to the news. Uh, we are this morning talking about autism. And before we went on to the newspaper, we're talking to Matthew Wicks, who is from Beyond Autism, head of outreach and training over there. Uh, Matthew, are you still on the line? I am, yeah. Excellent. Thank you very much for staying on the line. Really appreciate it. Right. So uh, the question I wanted to ask you was about the educational health and, and care plan, which uh, at the age of 25, uh, it it actually comes to an end. Uh, but, but I want to actually take a step back. So... Um, uh, our previous guest mentioned that um, there, in terms of uh, um, medical support, so you go to a GP, you, you're diagnosed, and then you're discharged. So when does the education, health, and care plan actually kick in before it's actually kicked out at 25? Yeah, so um, you can request um, an EHC assessment, um, so like a parent or carer can make that. Um, an individual can themselves as well if they're aged between 16 and 25 um, or also anyone who thinks it's necessary so it might be a school um, you know doctor can support in that bit as well um, so then if that assessment's like um, is carried out the local authority would can request like reports from the current school or nursery um, a doctor's assessment and then a letter from the person who uh, requested the assessment and then there's once that starts, then there are a range of sort of legal processes that have to happen, like um, timeframes that the local authority has to respond to. So they have 16 weeks to state if they will issue a plan. And, and then there's a whole range of things that go through that. Um, so that's sort of how it gets started. What does a plan usually encompass? Um, so there are different sections to that plan. Um, and basically, it, I mean, in summary, it's everything that the um, that young person needs. Um, but it starts off with um, things like the, their views and their interests and aspirations. So it's like it's person-centered. It's about that individual. Um, then it will have details of their special educational needs. And that's where things like the reports from school and from psychologists and things add into that. Um, it will have information about their health needs, um, if they have them. Obviously, if there's no specific health needs, then that won't be there their social care needs, you know, whether that's needing support um, in the home or you know, after school clubs, things like that. And then you get on sort of the main bits, which is around the outcomes. Um, so what they're looking to achieve and then also what educational provision is required to meet those outcomes. Um, and then there's a few more sections on, so what the healthcare provision would be like, what the social care provision. Um, there's always a named school or institution. Um, and then there's information about like sort of how it's paid and where the money comes from and everything. Um, so it's pretty comprehensive. It covers everything that's um, sort of needed. Um, children will have an annual review every year where mm. it's reviewed and things can be added to. And, um, yeah, so that's... Sure. That's so, so help me understand. So if you're, let's say, 18 or 20, uh, you are obviously out, out, out of school and, and you may be in a university, you may not be. Um, uh, who has ownership 
of this plan from a support perspective? Is it the local organisation? Is it the GP? Uh, um... It would be the local. The local authorities sort of have that um, overall responsibility for, um, yeah, for the plan and like right. creating it, getting it in place, and then, and then there'll be things within that often will be named. So if there's like the named education provider, um, sometimes there's additional. Um, so for example, as an organisation, we sometimes would be providing some of that support that's within the plan and it might be that's named as us or it's just that it um we can provide the support that's that's in the plan for the individual right so okay uh, just to uh, sort of understand this fully so uh, you go to a gp for a diagnosis then the gp will discharge you but then you can go to the local authority and ask for an educational health and care plan correct yes yeah that's right right and but that can only happen after a diagnosis um, well, it, I think the diagnosis often helps. It doesn't necessarily have to because an EHCP can obviously be for any um, any basic educational need that that young person yeah. might have, whether that's autism or that's something else, um, and also health. So it kind of covers the before we used to have before we had EHCPs, there was a statement of educational needs, but then if someone had like a significant health condition that they also needed. Um, support for that would be a separate plan and all these different kind of plans were then brought into one one place so it has right. education health and the care all in one okay um so yeah it doesn't necessarily have to be down to that diagnosis it could be someone has say a heart condition and they need um additional support there and what happens at the age of 25 then you're left uh, uh, on your own i mean yeah unfortunately it kind of so the plan um yeah, it finishes at 25, or actually if you go into employment as well, it will, um, hmm. it would end. Or if you, you know, so it wasn't needed anymore. Um, and it can be a bit of a cliff edge sort of adult services. It's, um, there's not as many as say children's services, which yeah, does make it difficult. Um, that's why as an organization, we, so our vision is to ensure that autistic children, young adults, um, access education which empowers that life full of choice independence and opportunity so we're really trying to get in there at that education time giving them those skills so then hopefully they've got more choice and independence when they get to adulthood but service wise is um it can be lacking excellent matthew thank you so very much for joining us really appreciate it and really appreciate you staying on the line as well have a lovely week uh, have a lovely monday and peace be with you thank you Sinji. bye-bye Bye-bye. So that was Matthew Wicks from Beyond Autism, the head of outreach and training uh, at Beyond Autism. And he was uh, talking to us about um, a range of uh, support mechanisms that are available for people who um, are autistic. Right. Um, we shall now take a very quick break. And when we come back, we will talk about um, uh, a little bit about the Islamic um, side of things, about, uh, you know, how uh, various, uh, what is Islamic teaching around supporting people with different needs and what sort of state responsibility um, does, um, uh, does Islam uh, impose on a state for people like that? Do stay tuned. Allah Akbar Allah Akbar Allah 
أشهد أن لا إله إلا الله Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Welcome back to this live edition of the Breakfast Show from South London Studios of Voice of Islam. Today is Monday, the 18th of September 2023. The time is 8:10. And we are about to talk about um, the possible ways to help children with autism in Islam. So what is um uh what's the solution within an Islamic society, um Imam Anan? Uh, yes, so in the midst of all this chaos, um, our Islamic perspective, it is rooted in the teachings of our beloved Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. Um, Hazrat Anas bin Malik, he narrated that the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, said that respect your children and cultivate in them the best of manners. Uh, this is, I think, the first and the most important thing. Uh, no matter how your child is, um, whether he has a disability or not, uh, the, the the first thing to do is to respect that, respect your children. Uh, a lot of people, I mean, they don't do that. They always think respect is for the elders, whereas respect is for everyone. If you give respect and uh, you, you teach your children respect, then uh, later when they grow older, you will see them respecting others. And this is what increases their status in, in society. And uh, the second part of this is to cultivate in them the best of manners, meaning that um, even though they have difficulty um, learning things, uh, especially if you talk about uh, autistic children, you still have to do your best to teach them. You have to try to teach them that this is how you uh, meet someone, this is how you sit. When, when, some, when, when, when an older person asks you to do something, you should listen to them. You know, these simple things. But in in the five-volume commentary, um, which is written by the second caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Bashiruddin Mahmud Ahmad, may Allah be pleased with him, uh, we find that the valuable insights of Ted Hartman, who is an uh, assistant clinical professor, um, align with the teachings of Islam. So in that commentary, uh, his audience mentions that this hadith commands parents to treat their children with due understanding and regard as such an act promotes feelings of dignity and self-respect in children while emphasizing their education and training our faith teaches us that when children grow up with a strong sense of self self-respect and dignity they can become pioneers of national progress and contribute positively to society and this is very interesting that um, His Holiness, the second caliph of the Hamdi Muslim community, uh, he was a very, very intelli- intelligent man. And but, but to see that his insight went so deep uh, as to he even figured out basically the the, the cause and, and treatment of autism in in a sense. But uh, further on this, uh, Doctor Hartman, uh, who he gives three major parenting tips that can make life with an autistic child more manageable. So firstly, he said that uh, parents should not wait for diagnosis. 
you need to do that as uh, as soon as possible. The most important step as a parent of a child with ASD, um, autistic uh, spectrum disorder, is to begin treatment promptly. And parents should get help as soon as possible because this will increase the chances of success in the treatment. Or, I mean, the earlier you know about this, the more likely you are to uh, tackle it in an early stage. Uh, the second piece of advice Dr. Hartman gave is to educate yourself more about autism spectrum disorder. Um, so first you have to diagnose it and then obviously you have to increase your no- own knowledge about this. This is especially for parents that uh, you need to understand what you're dealing with. And um, obviously this links very beautifully with Islam that seeking knowledge is kind of a, is a, compulsion is a mandatory thing for every man, every woman, every mother, every father. And uh, just as we seek knowledge of our faith, we should also seek knowledge about conditions like autism, especially if it if it's um, affecting you know your family. And instead of focusing on uh, differences, uh, Dr. Hartman says that instead of focusing on differences, embrace your child's unique qualities, celebrate small successes. You see, uh, I mean, parents do this uh, all the time anyways, that uh, if a child does something great, you say, oh, well done, that was amazing. Uh, it, it can be the smallest thing. So, But you see that this is, uh, it teaches the child that do, doing this action will result in this um, consequence. So it, it, it's a positive thing. So th- this way you can uh, teach uh, even autistic children to do good things. And the final advice given... Um, to create a, a personal, uh, the final advice by Dr. Hartman was to create a personalized treatment plan. So don't just hope for the best that, oh, I've diagnosed this, I know a little bit about autism and I'm going to try my best. You have to make a plan. You have to, um, yes, you have to plan that we're going to do this every day. We're going to do take these steps to improve uh, the condition of our child. And of course, there can always be conflicting uh, recommendations from parents and teachers and doctors but I think the parents are most aware of how their child feels how it reacts and responds to certain things um, and regarding this the Holy Quran has given us a a very um, I mean complete teaching about this uh, where the Holy Quran mentions that um, O ye who believe seek help with patience and prayer surely Allah is with the steadfast now, of course, it is a challenging situation, challenging, challenging time for the parents, and uh, because there is not much, um, uh, not not much research on this, there is not much treat- treatment or medications, as uh, mentioned earlier by uh, Miss Whitening. Um, a lot of parents feel, you know, a bit disheartened. They feel like, what can we do? And the Holy Quran has given you, um, given us. Um, I mean, the best thing we can do, which is to be patient. And secondly, to pray for our children, to pray for them, because ultimately God Almighty is the one who has created us. He is the one who, for whatever reason, uh, made that child autistic. And he is the one who has the power to uh, treat that child without medication, without any treatment. Uh, and regarding this, the Arabic word used for um, patience is sabr. And this signifies being steadfast and enduring afflictions with uh, fortitude and holding fast to divine law and refraining from what is harmful. Patience does not mean that you just it just happened to you and you, you passed on. It means that it's difficult. 
and it means you have to endure it. You have there's some kind of um, uh, there's some kind of difficulty and pain included in that patience. So this is the this is what Islam says that the best you can do is obviously respect your children firstly you know respect that they have a condition whatever condition they have and uh, don't give up on them keep keep uh, trying to teach them uh, good manners and then educate yourself on on this topic uh, if it is any other disease educate yourself on that topic and then uh, seek guidance seek treatment seek uh, diagnosis um you know, especially in now in our culture in, in Pakistan, India, and in those kind of countries, uh, we were all speaking earlier that um, it is just these kind of diagnoses uh, and this these conditions are not, uh, I mean, known. Even I think today people might think that if if there is an autistic child, uh, they might just say, "Oh, he's just like that." You know, he's just since since childhood he's been like that, even though they don't realize that now with the, the advancement of technology and in science we can diagnose these things we can we can differentiate between a autistic child and a depressed child we ha- we can differentiate between a um between someone who has uh, uh, ADHD and someone who has uh, OCD so there's there's differences there's diagnosis there's research now which is available so we have to utilize that and uh, this is i think um the, the, the to make it complete with the teaching of Islam is that to be patient and pray and pray and pray and pray for your children. Right. Thank you very, very much, Imam Usman Milan, for that uh, rather comprehensive uh, take uh, uh, on autism and conditions like that from an Islamic perspective. We shall now take a very quick break. And when we come back, we will start discussion on the second topic, which is about learning and development and the celebration of Adult Learners Week 2023. Do stay tuned. Three days that Ahmadi Muslims celebrate and are they contrary to the teachings of Islam? Now, these three days at first face value seem to be more pertinent to the calendar of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. But in reality, when we look a little bit deeper and understand the wider connotation, we understand that they are important not just to the Ahmadi Muslims, but indeed to Muslims across the world and indeed theists throughout the globe. These three days, namely celebrating the day of the promised Messiah, celebrating the day of the promised son and celebrating the institution of Khilafat or Caliphate are such that are incredibly important in our day-to-day religion. But they're important also because of the fact that they refer to prophecies made by the founder of Islam, the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of God be upon him. It was he that said that these events would occur. The promised Messiah, for example, the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of God be upon him, said that in the latter days, an eschatological figure or a figure in the latter days would emerge to rejoin man with man, but also man with God. And therefore, we celebrate the fact that this grand prophecy made almost a millennia and a half ago has come true. The allegation that uh, is the celebration of these days something which we should be um, abstaining from? Of course not. Something as joyous and something as jubilant as the fulfillment of a grand prophecy of our Grand Master, the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of God be upon him, proving not only the truth of the promised Messiah, but proving the truth of the Holy Prophet and indeed proving the existence of God. Is that not something to be happy and jubilant about? 
Then we have the concept of the caliphate, the establishment of khilafat. Again, this is something which is mentioned by the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of God be upon him. Prophesied that khilafat alamin haji nabuwa, caliphate upon the precepts of prophethood, would come to existence. Again, something which is also mentioned in the Holy Quran itself. So when we see after so many years, something so blessed coming into being, that gives meaning to our very life, is this not something to be happy and to celebrate? Then the third day is the day of the promised son. Again, we understand that when God sends his prophets to earth, he does not send them empty-handed. Rather, he sends them furnished and armed with beautiful signs of truth to prove the claims that they make. This, this concept and this prophecy of the uh, promised son, who indeed was Hazrat Mirza Bashiruddin Mahmud Ahmed, who later on became the second caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, this was a grand prophecy which showed that God indeed was on the side of the promised Messiah, thereby proving not only his claim, but also the claim that this Messiah would indeed come furnished with signs, as was said and foretold by, you guessed it, the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of God be upon him. Therefore, these three days, of course they are in accordance with the teachings of Islam. Indeed, they are prophesied by no less than the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of God be upon him. A man makes a prophecy 1400 years ago, they come true. Are we not going to be celebrating and be joyous at that? On a side note, the concept of celebration Indeed, many people will raise this allegation because of the fact that they allege that this is a, an innovation to celebrate these days. But as we've mentioned, it is in complete accordance with the teachings of the Holy Quran and the prophecies of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of God be upon him. And we're not talking about celebration like we're setting off cartwheels and fireworks and dancing. This is a celebration of the signs of God, where we bring people together to remember God, to talk about the signs and the glory of God. And this is actually told as an injunction in the Holy Quran. It says in chapter 14, verse 6, that remind them of the days and the signs of God. Therefore, this is not contrary. Rather, it is completely in accordance with the teachings of Islam and something which absolutely everyone should be involved in because of the fact that what else is there to be joyous about for a theist, God-believing community than to celebrate the glorious and wonderful proofs and signs of God. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Welcome back to this live edition of The Breakfast Show from South London Studios of Voice of Islam. So today marks the beginning of the Adult Learners Week, which is scheduled to take place between today and the 24th of September, so 18th to the 24th of September 2023. So this is an opportunity really to embrace um, your passion for learning, brush up your skills, improve your health and well-being, progress your career, or seek tailored advice and information on funding or specialized career pathways. A recent survey found that a whopping 92% of employees want their employers to have a keen focus on learning and development in their roles. Learning is the new commodity and employers are keen to offer this as well in the scramble to attract and retain their employees in a competitive market in which 9 in 10 are facing challenges with recruitment. This according to Alan Price, CEO of Bright HR, who says... 
The stats indicate that learning in the workplace isn't just related to the skills of a trade or discipline, but also those softer skills that are applicable across industries and to any profession and very much needed in today's world of work. In fact, diversity, equality and inclusion awareness is a most access course followed by mental health awareness. In a third place is cybersecurity best practices, he said, and we've seen high engagement with courses such as GDPR and time management uh, as they rank high in popularity as well. Earlier on, we spoke uh, to uh, an expert in this area, um, Dr. Denise Buchanan from the Institute of Education at the University College London. She's a senior research fellow and lecturer in education over there uh, about this subject. Let's listen in. First of all, thank you for, um, thank you for joining us for this interview. Um, uh, so uh, we are talking about uh, uh, adults going back to education. Uh, could you uh, start off by telling us uh, more about yourself and the work you do, please? Yes, certainly. Um, I'm working at the Institute of Education, which is part of UCL. And um, I work in research and in lecturing and education. And um, in our institute, we carry out lots of research on education and society generally, as well as um, training teachers. And so you may have, you can hear from my accent, I'm not from England, I'm from Ireland. And I originally trained as a nurse and then I went into teaching. So then I came to university here to do my MA and PhD. And that was, um, that's why I did the research among people who, adults who had mental health problems, um, returning to learning. And I'll just tell you what prompted me to do that. When I was teaching in a further education college, um, I was teaching cookery for a group of people who all had come via the hospital and had mental health problems. And I'd been teaching them how to make a cake. And I went round to see what the cakes were like. And I said to one woman who was kind of a mature learner, and I said to her, oh, this cake looks excellent, well done. And she started crying. And I couldn't believe she was crying. I said, why are you crying? Because the cake has turned out. And she said, I was so scared about coming back into learning. I just didn't think I could do it, but I've been able to do it and I'm amazed. And so I wanted to explore more the difference it made for people who had come back into learning as adults. Mm -hmm. Great. Thank you very much. And do you think that celebrating this uh, Adult Learners Week will encourage more adults to consider going into education or like gaining any new skills? Uh, how likely is that to happen? What's your expectation? Well, I will tell you what my hope is. I really do hope that it does encourage them. I think this is a significant week. I think that going back into education as an adult is a wonderful thing to do, and it's so good for one's mm -hmm. mental health. And I think it's particularly important nowadays because we have come out of a very difficult few years with COVID-19, and um, there's definitely been reports that mental health problems have increased among a number of people, different groups, and people have been feeling really isolated. So I am passionate about encouraging people to go into learning and age should be no barrier because would you believe I didn't do my PhD until I was in my 50s? 
So please don't tell me that you're too old to come back into learning. <laughs> yes. Uh, so I think my understanding of this is that um, because people are busy in their lives, um, those who have already finished education, I think uh, most of the people didn't enjoy it. But if, if someone does enjoy it, uh, it's just there's no time, uh, you know, to go back to education again. People are working, lives are busy. Uh, so why do you think some adults um, are hesitant to come back and what challenges do they face um, if they do want to come back? Well, I think you've made a good point there. I think that there's external barriers such as um, um, work responsibilities, they're too busy. Family responsibilities, they feel that they couldn't take that time out for themselves. And there's also internal barriers, but I'll just say a few more of the external ones. So, as I said, time is a big factor. Finance is a fear for people. But it could also be that, um, say, for instance, a mum who's been at home with her kids, um, that they, the family would really not expect her to want to go out and go back into learning and may not encourage her. Or it could mm-hmm. be that there's other barriers, um, cultural or religious barriers. But one barrier you mentioned there as well, which comes to the internal barriers, is that about possibly people have got negative experiences from the past of learning in school. And yeah. so there can be such a fear of failure. I have taught different age groups through my um, teaching career, children, teenagers, adults. But it was a real surprise to me that when I was teaching adults, they showed as much fear about failing as I had seen in some of my other students. Mm-hmm. And I think it's almost heightened because adults feel more embarrassed thinking, oh, I don't want to show myself up. They sh- I should know, I should be able to do this, I'm an adult. And then there's a fear of the unknown. There's a fear of making mistakes in front of other people. Um, I always remember one um, student in my class saying, Denise, the biggest thing I've learned in this class is that it's okay to make mistakes because you make mistakes. (laughs) And And also I would say that unless you're making mistakes, it could be, if you're not making mistakes, it could be you're just staying in your comfort zone. But if we push ourselves out to try and learn, then actually we are going to make mistakes. And then just a few more things about barriers. It could be that someone has something like dyslexia and they think, no, I'm not suited to learning. Mental health problems, physical health problems, age. But let me tell you that there's loads of support in colleges to do with particularly, say, mental health problems. In the college I taught, we had excellent mental health advisors who kind of accompanied the students on their journey through the college. But there'll also be help with your learning difficulties and financial advice. But I also think that thing that you said, people have really negative memories. And what I would say is set those aside because this is a different era in which you're returning to learning and there'll be much more support and understanding. Yeah, you mentioned a few times about mental health. Uh, So how is that uh, going to help people? Um, I mean, I think going back to education will just bring more stress, isn't it? I think that's a really good point you've said. And of course, I need to acknowledge that education can lead to stress. I've certainly got a lot of students at the moment who must be feeling very stressed as they finish off writing their dissertations Mm -hmm. that I'm going to be marking from next week. But 
I would say that the the advantages outweigh the disadvantages. So I've got quite a few things I'd like to say about the positive impact it can have. And I'm basing it on the evidence that I gathered when I was doing my PhD study. And I was interviewing 15 adult learners. And as I said earlier, they'd all actually been people with mental health problems. So they had told the college that they had mental health problems. So what I'm going to do now is go through some of the things that they said really helped them and how they benefited. And what I'll try and do is just so that you can get more of a picture in your head is give just some of the quotations that they said. So one thing is, of course, you learn new skills and that's good for everybody's mental health. Um, I had one person in the class um, who, um, sorry, in the study, and uh, her, I'll give her the name Santosh. Obviously, these aren't the real names, but I'll, I've given them these names for now. Mm-hmm. And okay. she was someone who had had a really difficult time at home and at one point became homeless and lived in a hostel. And then she was encouraged to come to college and she was so nervous, she said she couldn't put her signature on the enrollment form. Anyway, when I met her, She had actually trained as a chef and she was now working. And she said that it had given her an amazing second chance. So learning new skills. Another thing is it lifts your mood. It's so so good for your mood to be doing something that's actually really engaging you. Okay, there's a little, there's a word for this and it can be called flow. So for instance, this morning I was Mm -hmm. doing a puzzle. And as I did that word puzzle, in, um, I actually got so absorbed in it that I've forgotten what time it was. And that's what a sense of flow is. You're kind of distracted and you're so engaged and concentrating on the task you're doing that you forget what time it is. And so yeah. I find that a number of them said it particularly helped them to be absorbed in a positive way. And in that state, really distracted them from their worries. Because may I say, some of the people who were involved in my study really did have difficult circumstances. And so to me, it was wonderful to hear that for the time they were in college, it really took them into a different plane and that they were really enjoying it. And like I had one um, gentleman in the study, Simon, and he actually had depression, but also quite a severe physical disability. And I remember him saying, I just loved coming here. I would come into class feeling really low, but then I'd be with everyone else and get involved in the cooking and really it would lift my mood. So there's a social aspect as well. I think this is so significant, not least because of what I said about Mm COVID-19, but I think the really significant thing socially is that you're coming into a situation where you're meeting a new diverse group of people. And those people are going to be different from your family and also your friends, because you kind of choose your friends, but you won't be choosing the people who are in your class. But you come together and then you find yourself in a situation where you've got a shared goal and a sense of belonging. And that is so important for mental health, for good mental health. Um, I had one young um, fella in my study called Reuben, and he had been in college a few years before I did my research. And he reflected back and he said, 
I really enjoyed that class. I really felt that I belonged and I had friends. But he said, unfortunately, now a few years on, um, because he's had some more difficulties in life, I'm very isolated and the doctors are really concerned about that. But it was amazing to hear him remember how precious it had been to be in that environment. Can I go on for a few? Can I tell you a few more or have I taken up my time? No, no, you you can speak as long as you (laughs) want. Uh, But let me just add a... Let me just add my personal experience as well in there. So I finished education. I studied theology. Um, and uh, I, I feel like, uh, especially in, in my field, I'm a missionary, especially in my field, there, there's no end to education. Uh, end to education. Um, even if I've finished my studies, I mean, there's new challenges. You always see new kind of, uh, you know, different ways of thinking are coming out because of technology. You have to adapt yourself. So you're always learning. Um, and I think there's no end to education uh, in, in that sense. Um, but going back uh, to education in terms of, uh, let's say, going to school or, you know, having fixed hours of study, that can be quite challenging for a lot of people. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to add that in there. So you can carry on if you have uh, one or two more stories. Yeah, and let, but let me tell you, I completely understand what you're saying there. I think that we're always learning. I mean, my goodness, we can't... We have to keep learning. You know, um, my father is 96 um, and uh, he doesn't know how to use a computer. Okay, I think that's fine at 96. <laughs> but it's not, an option. <laughs> it's not an option for the rest of us who are younger, is it? Because technology, as you mentioned, is always going on. But when mm-hmm. I talk about going back into education, I'm not just talking about signing up for a full-time course. I'm talking about taking the first step and going in to do an evening course once a week for a term or a few terms. And then it may become more. And I think that's a big thing that came out from my um, research is that actually it's about stepping stones. You don't start by saying when you've been out of education, oh, I'm going to do a PhD. You start by thinking, oh, what would interest me? What would be a good thing to go back and do? Because the other thing that comes out of it, another thing that's good for your mental health, is the fact that it can give you more confidence. I've got a brilliant um, quote from Santosh, who I mentioned earlier, who had been homeless in a hostel and then ended up as a chef. She says, she said to me, my friends are amazed. I've gained so much confidence and now I'm not intimidated by friends who are lawyers or doctors. What I have to say to them is as valuable as what they have to say to me. I know who I am now. I have self-respect now. And actually, you touched on this when you said there about changing your kind of view of the world. So she had really changed her view and also her view of herself. And I think that's another important thing. When people get involved in learning, it can really change how they see themselves Um, Louise, who was someone who had had a very difficult time with her mental health problems, she said, becoming a patient, I thought I was nobody. But in college, I think I'm treated as normal. I have a sense of purpose that I can actually do something. It builds me up. Isn't that a wonderful thing to hear her say? Yeah, it's beautiful. And so then there's other things like the purpose. I remember one person who was um, 
now no longer working because of their mental health problems. And she said to me, Denise, I do one class a week and it's in the calendar. And now it gives me a structure and a purpose to my whole week because I always look at my calendar and think, okay, Wednesday, I've got my class. And then the the rest of the week seems to go okay around that. And then, of course, there's the achievement element. Now, you said you studied theology, and that's great, but I'm not talking about necessarily people having a full degree. I'm talking about achieving by even just turning up and making a weekly commitment to get into college and go to their class. And also acquiring new skills, whether that leads to a certificate or not. And in that, it can really give you hope um, I had one young um, student in it called Prem, and she said to me, I left school with no qualifications, and I went into a job, and it was just such a dead-end job for me. And now I've come into college, and I'm really enjoying it, and it's really opened up my whole sort of um, future. I can see so many different possibilities. Yeah. Another one, Orla, sorry, um, Orla came in and said, um, it's really given me a sense of purpose. I've got a goal now. I'm going to make sure I finish this class. And then just to give you one last quotation, um, and it refers back to when I mentioned about the sense of absorption and flow that people can feel. There was one person, Daisy, who has had many years of quite severe mental health problems. And she had reached the point where the psychiatrist now was saying that she had that she could come off her medication, which he attributed to have been contributed to by the fact that she'd been on a course in college for two years. And I always remember the quotation she gave me, and she said, my psychiatrist said that I'm doing swimmingly well now that I'm in college. (laughs) And I just thought that was really quaint. So as you can hear from me, I am so passionate about this. And I really feel that there are many great benefits for people's mental health. And I'd really urge you, if you're thinking at home, I could never do something like that. Just take the first step. Go to the college nearby. Find out what's on offer. Look on the website. Ask around. Take the first step. That's usually the most difficult step. Yes, definitely. Uh, that was very well put. Um, I think some amazing uh, quotes and some amazing uh, incidents you have quoted as well. Um, thank you, Doctor. Thank you, Dr. Denise. It was uh, amazing speaking to you. Um, uh, you. You made me go back to education as well. <laughs> so, uh, uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you for joining us. And it was lovely speaking to you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Right. So that was Dr. Denise Buchanan. Uh, who works at the Institute of Education at the University College London as a research, as a senior research fellow and lecturer in education. Right, very interesting interview there, um, Imam Usman Manan, um, and lots for us to to learn in terms of the importance of learning and development and the importance of lifelong learning, really. Yes, definitely. I mean, she inspired me a little bit as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We could, we could see that. <laughs> we could, we could um, pick that. Absolutely, um, but you know, I, I'm actually I, I enjoy learning. I like learning. I like mm. to study. But what I don't mm. like is, for some reason, I don't know why, I don't like reading books. Mm. Um, that was my biggest challenge in the studies as well. That, mm. uh, well, there are all sorts of different ways of learning these days. There's mm. uh, there's obviously online. There's uh, you know YouTube can be. There's podcasts. There's so many different ways yeah, of consuming. But you know the way you learn when you read a book 
is like different. I've done it. I don't have. <laughs> I haven't done it many times, but when I did, it definitely did it benefit helped. you. Yeah, it's like uh, first of all, it, it improves your vocabulary, your, mm. your reading, your speed. Uh, but apart from that, because you're visually looking at text and you can kind of think back to it mm. to in, like specific information, whereas if you hear it from someone, uh, it's just less likely you will remember it. Mm. Uh, just reading sure. things is is more. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's there's something about holding a book in your hand and um, mm. and and reading it, a physical book, and 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 that is really exciting and and, and something that I enjoy as well. But uh, for some people, uh, audiobook audiobooks work like a miracle yeah, as well. Yeah. And uh, and that's you know something which is becoming increasingly mm. popular. So a I lot think of audiobook books, is like you can just put it on on the side and do other tasks. Yeah, so, yeah. So uh, if you're walking or if mm. you're you know if you're commuting or um, uh, you know if you're free, that's usually a very good time for you to you know just put your headphones on and um, you know um, and um, you can listen to a book and you know consume a book and what eight ten hours worth of. Uh, yeah. Uh, worth of listening, uh, so that usually is a very good use of your commuting time. Um, for example, and a lot of books these days are available on uh, Audible and um, and and other services. Okay, um, uh, moving on to the um, to the uh, to the importance of education in Islam. Um, I'm reminding or I'm reminded of uh, the tradition of the Holy Prophet of Islam. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon him where he said that uh, knowledge is the lost property of a believer. Um, I'd like to now play a few clips of from the 2019 address of His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Masoor Ahmad, who is the current and the fifth head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Uh, may Allah be his helper. Um, and he talked about the importance of education and the importance of education in Islam right from the beginning. Let's listen in. In addition, the Prophet of Islam, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, established an excellent education system through which the intellectual standards of that society were raised. Literate and well-educated people were instructed to teach the illiterate. Special measures were put in place to provide education to orphans, and other vulnerable members of society. This was, this was all done so that the weak and powerless could stand on their own two feet and advance. Another issue often raised is of women's rights. And it is often alleged that Islam denies women's rights. Nothing could be further from the truth. Rather, Islam established the rights of women and girls for the first time. At a time when women and girls were discriminated against and often looked down upon, the Prophet of Islam instructed his followers to ensure that girls were educated and respected. Indeed, he said that if a person had three daughters who they educated and guided in the best way, they would be sure to enter paradise. It is contrary 
to the extremists claim that a violent jihad and the slaughter of non-Muslims will take a person to heaven. Yet, the Prophet of Islam, peace and blessings be upon him, taught that the way to enter heaven was by educating and instilling moral values within girls. Based upon the teachings, Ahmadi Muslim girls across the world are educated and are excelling in various fields. They are becoming doctors, teachers, architects, and entering other professions through which they can serve humanity. <clears throat> we ensure that girls are given equal access to education as boys. Hence, the literacy rate of Ahmadi Muslim girls in the developing world is at least 99%. Besides education, Islam was the religion that first gave women the right to inheritance, the right to divorce, and many other human rights. Another allegation leveled against Islam by certain critics is that it is a backward and archaic religion, or one that does not promote intellectual advancement. This is a lazy stereotype that is based on fiction rather than fact. <clears throat> it is a baseless allegation. The Holy Quran itself has signified the importance of education by teaching the prayer, the, Oh my Lord, increase me in knowledge. Where this prayer is a source of great help to Muslims, it also inspires them towards learning and advancing the cause of human knowledge. The truth is that the Holy Quran and the teachings of the Holy Prophet of Islam, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, inspired the works of generations of Muslims, intellectuals, philosophers, and inventors in the Middle Ages. Indeed, if we look back more than a, million, a millennium, we see how Muslims, scientists, and inventors played a fundamental role in advancing knowledge and developing technologies which transformed the world and remain in use today. All right, so that was uh, Hazrat Mirza Masood Ahmed, the fifth head of the Ahmadi Muslim community, talking um, at UNESCO um, headquarters back in 2019 about the importance of education in Islam uh, right from the beginning of Islam, right from the time of Prophet Muhammad, and peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, his time, and uh, also the importance of education for girls in, in Islam as well. And the important education um, is the importance of education within the Ahmadiyya Muslim community as a result um, of that history and background as well. So, uh, Imam Anand, we, we're coming to the um, end of the segment. Yeah. How would you like to conclude uh, this? I think I have a, um, a request at the end. Uh, firstly, to our 
uh, non ahmadi and non muslim listeners uh, i mean they were hopefully regular in tuning in and listening to this show and this radio in general that you hear about islam so much um so i have a question that have you read uh, the holy quran yourself mm. it's available in all different languages english this translation so i would request to those people who are listening firstly mm. um to look into this that what we are saying is that even true i mean uh, you have to do your own research yeah and it is a claim of the holy quran in fact that whoever um sin- with a sincere heart uh, looks into this uh who, who takes a step towards god he will surely find god and god will move towards him but on the other hand i will have a request to uh the ahmadi and the muslim brothers who are um as we believe on the right path mm. um because we're talking about knowledge uh, we need to understand that all religions are from god and they right. have different religious scriptures um for example the torah and the bible mm. so my request to those people to the muslims and the ahmadi uh, ahmadis and the muslims who do uh, read the holy quran that we should also read the bible mm. we also need to look into the uh, religions uh, which um, we claim to be uh, the truthful we need to see that what do the other religions say mm. and we will see so much common uh, knowledge so many com- uh, uh, common things in these religions that will increase our faith yeah. in islam because islam says that uh, all religions which were sent all prophets which were sent from uh uh were from god almighty and they were truthful all had the same message and mainly that god is one worship him and the rights of um humans that came a bit later with islam but the main message was the the unity of god yeah so this is my just request at the end to increase your knowledge not just in uh in in and you know worldly things but because the ultimate purpose of our life once we die what what's left i mean it doesn't matter if you know about einstein if you know about the theory of evolution or whatever yeah. what's going to help us is our spirituality our connection with god okay. so uh yes this is my request at the end for the non muslims look into the quran see what we are saying is it even true is it even like mm-hmm. does it make sense it and for, for the yourselves. muslims yeah uh even the muslims should be reading the holy quran and studying it properly but sure. apart from that look into other religious scriptures mm. and that will make you realize and appreciate what Islam has given us. Absolutely excellent advice uh Imam Usman Milan there um and um uh, excellent uh, uh point there that you made uh, something uh, on which all of us should ponder and act uh, as well in terms of reading the scriptures uh which uh, we believe are holy scriptures. Right. Uh that concludes our show for this morning. I must thank our producer Taimina Chima, researcher Saira Ahmed, Madia Chima, Wajia Harun and Salas Siddiqui, as well as excellent support uh, from the tech room from Mr. Tahir. Thanks to you as well, uh my co-presenter Imam Usman Manan. Thank you to all the listeners for uh listening to us, uh, listening to our show. Um keep sending us your feedback. Uh, you can call us at 02086877878 to give you uh to give your feedback. You can tweet us at Voice of Islam UK or um you can also email us at info@voiceofislam.co.uk. 
We shall be back with another edition of The Breakfast Show next Monday, but there will be another live show tomorrow morning. Uh, this is a weekday program, so there will be live shows throughout the week from Monday to Friday. There will be another live show today, which is also a weekday show from Monday to Friday, which is called The Drive Time Show, and takes place from 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. Uh, from Monday to Friday. But until next week, uh, this is your host, Daniel Zia, and Imam Usman Manan signing off. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you.